Hello and welcome to the Leadership in Action interview. Today's subject is John Heaps, Chairman of Evershed LLP, one of the top 10 law firms in the UK with revenues in excess of £350 million. He's also a partner in their commercial dispute resolution team based here in London, where he represents European and US multinational clients in their commercial disputes, which often involve complex cross-border issues. John introduced Eversheds to the concept of dispute management using early case assessment as an analytical tool, and this has been used by many of the firm's clients, including the UK government. John is a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators and is recognised as an expert in commercial litigation by Who's Who Legal. He lectures widely and has written on a variety of legal topics for publications, including the New York Law Journal. Welcome, John, and how are you today? I'm fine. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. John, tell us a bit about the challenges of acting as chairman within a partnership organisation where you're responsible to a huge number of partners. The role of chairman in a law firm, I think, is very different to the uh, way that you'd imagine a chairman would function in the corporate world because, um, well, for two reasons, really. One is that you are balancing the role as chairman with your day job as a for my in my case as a partner in the commercial litigation group in London um, so you've you've got to make sure that you're delivering to both those constituencies and then as far as the firm is concerned Evershed has grown over the last 25 years uh, to now operate in something like 48 different locations in 27 countries and uh, ensuring you keep in touch with um, not only the partners but also members of staff and can reach them and communicate with them is, um, to say the very least, a constant challenge. And how do you... How do I do that? (laughs) That's a very good question. Well, I think that there are... um, uh, Obviously, you've got to make the most of modern methods of communication, um, apart from anything else. Uh, But in the end you have to uh, be there in person as much as you possibly can. So uh, typically in a year I will visit uh, certainly all the offices uh, in the UK at least once, uh, probably twice, and as far as the offices uh, outside the UK are concerned, I will, uh, for example, make a visit to our Middle East offices once a year. I've just returned from uh, visiting uh, our Asia offices in Singapore, Hong Kong and Shanghai. We're just about to open in Beijing. Um, and there is no substitute for sort of being on the ground. Uh, but I think that it, you've got to think very carefully about what you are going to do when you're there. And I think there is a, a very considerable temptation on the part of senior management to uh, feel that if you attend an office um, and you hold a meeting there, uh, that that is in some way sufficient. But I think that when you're in the office, you have to be extremely visible. It means walking the floors and uh, making sure that ahead of time uh, you have organised meetings with individuals. What I've tended to find is that if I simply say to the partners and the staff, I'm going to be in um, Paris Manchester, Newcastle, Cardiff, uh, Hong Kong, on a certain date, uh, would would you like some time to talk? Um, The response is a little disappointing, to say the very least. So what I say to my secretary is, I'm going to be in one of these locations. Um, I need you to fix up half-hour meetings with people. 
And once those meetings are in the diary, and it means you know, just going through the morning, uh, what I tend to do is spend the morning having those sort of discussions. I'll then have uh, lunch with maybe a group of associates, um, and then in the afternoon I'll simply walk the floor um, so that people can um, speak to me if, if that's their wish. Um, once you've geared the day up like that and you've made sure that it's properly organised and you can cover a lot of ground, uh, which if you don't plan ahead, uh, you've absolutely no chance of doing. Well, that leads me on nicely to my next question, which is around how you run a global operation like Evershed mm-hmm. and ensuring consistency of delivery and client experience across the different locations and cultures. Yeah. So you, you've obviously got a feedback mechanism where, yes. where you, you can gauge what's going on on the ground. But how do you use that opportunity to then inculcate the rights or values in each location? Uh, All organisations would say the same thing. Evershed is no different. Values are absolutely core. Um, And we we have to um, be clear with everybody about what we stand for. And one of the ways that I have described this, uh, certainly in, in a speech I made to the partnership last June, is I talk about the spirit of Evershed, which is um, something that I feel very strongly about. And I think that it it summarises an awful lot of what the firm is is about. Uh, It's a place uh, where people are very, if you like, personable. They enjoy each other's company. There is an awful lot of interaction. And I think that um, it's very important that we convey to everybody within the organisation how... Uh, critically important that is because to me the way that we behave towards each other uh, is going to largely be the way that we behave towards our clients too and I think that if we can get it right internally then there's every chance that we're going to be able to get it right uh, externally Um, as far as uh, and that makes a huge contribution to this um, uh, not exactly in nirvana, but but this place that everybody is trying to reach, where you have achieved this consistency of service across all your operations. Um, in the end, uh, you're tested by your clients. And what I think has been interesting for Eversheds over the course of the last few years is that when we embarked on our um, decision to to be a provider of global legal services. Uh, there wasn't a great deal of existing demand at that time because what tended to happen was that general counsel of companies would um, prefer to uh, visit locations and cherry-pick the lawyers in cities um, who they felt best met their needs. We came along and said that we believed that we could deliver to companies a service where we actually looked after all their requirements, wherever that might be. Um, Now I believe that we look after something in the region of 28 um, international organisations in exactly that way. Uh, The most well-known of them is Tyco, because I suppose in many ways that set the standard. Uh, But we look after Tyco in, in more than 80 jurisdictions, and they expect us to deliver consistent service and to be able to report to them on their cases and matters that they entrust to us in an entirely consistent way. Uh, We developed something called our Global Account Management System, which is the sort of process or the system end of it all. Um, But that's only the process or system end. It's still essential that you've got people who've got the right attitude of mind and who are delivering the service on the ground in an entirely consistent manner. 
Um, you asked me about uh, feedback and how we know that this is working. Uh, well, you know, you know because if you fail, these days clients <coughs> will let you know very quickly. But we also use an external provider called Acuogen, and we ask them to interview our clients from time to time uh, independently to ask uh, the clients what they think of what we are doing. And we obviously feed all that information back in so that we are responding uh, to any concerns or criticisms that, that might exist. So we, we have a very early warning of where things might not be going well. So quite a comprehensive process then? I believe so, yes. Yeah, yeah good. Um, talking about values, one of your stated values is teamwork. Mm-hmm. How do you ensure that teamwork is ingrained in your culture? When the Shirts first came together in the late 80s, um, the firm uh, was essentially a franchise operation, frankly, and we had about half a dozen offices around the UK, um, which originally traded under their own names until the brand of Eversheds was introduced. And in, in those days, we dis- developed a concept called um, Evershedian behaviour. And the fundamental idea behind that was that instead of each office which was its own profit centre, acting in its own best interests. We realised that the only chance we had was that if we all decided to work on behalf of the firm as a whole, uh, because if we didn't operate in that way, then, um, as somebody once put it, somebody else would eat our lunch. And it was absolutely fundamental uh, that we did the right thing by the firm as a whole. That, to me, is the core... uh, characteristic of how you work um, as, as true teams. It is, the, it is the abandonment of the needs of the individual in the interests of, of what is achieved by the team as, as a whole. And I think that it is uh, hardwired within the, the whole organisation. And I think that what we have been able to do, particularly um, with our footprint in the UK, is make the very most of our network of offices, and we describe it as a networked law. But obviously here we are having this interview in our city uh, office in Wood Street. Uh, This is a very expensive um, country, uh, not only for real estate but also for wages. Um, And obviously the rates that are charged here are significantly higher than uh, elsewhere in the country. But we have um, very high-quality lawyers Um, who are operating in other offices around the country. I frequently lead teams um, handling pieces of litigation uh, where the lawyers are based outside London. Um, We manage those pieces of litigation very effectively indeed because we've learned how to operate in circumstances where people are not sitting right next to us Um, and therefore there's an awful lot of trust that has developed because people have got to know each other over a period of time. And that means you can make the very most of uh, modern telecommunications methodologies, including uh, video conferencing and, and, and other techniques. Sounds very much like what we would call the A-team mentality, where everybody's bought into the needs of the A-team and then their functional responsibilities are the, the B-team. I think, yeah, that's a very good way of, of describing it, yeah. So... You've described about how you think great teamwork would look in practice. How mm-hmm. do you know when you're getting it and when you're not getting it? What kind of warning signs do you have? Uh, the, the, um, there are two ways, I think, that I would immediately know that something was going wrong. 
the first is a level of discomfort amongst members of the team who may express themselves not necessarily in a people don't often describe to you precisely what is going on but if you listen carefully you you pick up messages um, that all is not as it should be and you've got to be very acutely aware and very sensitive to how members of the team are, are reacting and responding so the first thing to say is that it, it, it does um, it does uh, represent itself very clearly amongst the members of the team as long as you're sort of listening to them. And I think it is the team leader's primary responsibility um, to be acutely aware of those changes and, and understand how um, that can be dealt with. The second way you find out is... Um, and, well, and regrettably, is, is through the clients. And sometimes they uh, do um, say to you that things are not working um, according to plan. And um, th that's extremely unfortunate if it's found its way out into the public uh, client domain. Um, but you've got to listen to the clients as well. And they sometimes provide you with information that is not necessarily easy to obtain on the ground. Internally, so from what you're saying, it, the um, non-verbal communications that I know you're very interested in mm. plays quite a big role in that. We'd like to expand a bit more about how you use non-verbal communications to ensure that things work smoothly at Eversheds. Uh, I'll try and do that. The, the the best way I can describe it. Th this is to me, I suppose, good teamwork has a lot to do with um, strong and good leadership. And uh, leadership exists at many levels within the organisation. You're not just talking about chief executives and chairman. Uh, you're talking about everybody who's got responsibility for a team has got to understand what it means to uh, lead that team. And uh, one of the lessons that I learned very early on when I was given some form of managerial responsibility was the way that your non-verbal communications are received by members of the team. Uh, so here's the example. I came into the office one day, uh, this would be back in 1995, I was working in, in the Leeds office and um, came into the office and I was working away and this guy knocked on the door, came in and he said to me, hey, hey John, what, what's going on? You know, uh, Are you okay? I said, well, I'm fine, yeah, why do you ask? He said, well, every morning you come in the office, you, you always got a smiley face, you say good morning to everybody. Today, you walk through the door with your head down and you've gone straight in your room, shut the door, and you're working away. They're all panic-stricken out there, <laughs> wondering what's going to happen to them. And I was completely shocked that anybody should take the blindest bit of notice of my personal demeanour and they were obviously taking messages from the way that I, I was now. I can't remember now why I was in a particularly disagreeable mood that day. But what it taught me was the hugely important leadership um, quality of remembering how important your nonverbal communications are. And a few years later, I read a book about Ernest Shackleton and his voyage to the South Pole. 
and you'll remember that there was um, a rather uh, considerable disaster. The, the, the ship got stuck in the ice, and Shackleton had to get all these men out. And at one point, they were all uh, in this open boat in the South Atlantic Ocean. And um, uh, the story goes that one of the men, after three days without food and they're all freezing to death, uh, turned round um, and saw Shackleton with the tiller under his arm, with his pipe in his mouth, whistling away as if he was on a trip round the lighthouse. And th- this guy said that he drew so much strength. Uh, Shackleton, no doubt, felt no better than any of the other guys, but he realised that the way that he appeared to them and the way that, and it's not what he was saying, it was the way that he appeared to them was such a critical factor. So to me, team leadership uh, is, is, is a lot to do with the way that you come across as an individual, and that's a 24-7 thing. And sometimes I stand, literally stand outside the office door in the morning, uh, <laughs> take a few deep breaths, not exactly over the top because it's not that difficult, but recognise the importance of... Uh, coming in in the morning and um, maybe casting of some light rather than a shadow. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's something that fascinated me. <clears throat> when you look at how we behave and how our different behavioural preferences and styles can help mm. and hinder us in different ways. Um, to be successful in a law firm, you need exceptional technical skills. Yeah. Uh, and without great personal skills too, it can come across as being a bit cold and dispassionate. Yes. So... I'm interested in how you help your people develop their interpersonal skills mm. so that they can build deeper, more productive working relationships. Yeah. Um, I think it begins with selection. Um, and I think that uh, there are many, many personality types and there are um, many, many extremely, extremely able people who are very well geared for certain types of role in the law. Um, the way that I believe Eversheds has developed and the way that we uh, interact with our clients means that we need people who are capable of interacting successfully with clients. And what I mean by that is that clients these days have got an enormous amount of choice. It's a highly competitive marketplace. They can decide who they wish to spend time with. And they will usually choose people who they enjoy the company of. And generally speaking, those are people who, um, without being ridiculous about it, um, are pleasant, uh, who are prepared to share thoughts beyond the immediate um, business of the day. Uh, Because I remember a, a guy once phoning me up. He was the finance director of a construction company and uh, he was on the phone for about half an hour and at the end of this half an hour um, I said yeah Bob sorry what was it you wanted he said ah John I just wanted a chat (laughs) and we talked about the rugby from Saturday or something about his children and these people are human beings as well you know that's like us and um, it's very important that we relate to them in a very human way. I think it's an incredibly important part of our role because frankly at the end of the day um, while we are, uh, it is required that we are technically very able because the issues that we are looking at are of immense importance from a technical point of view but at the end of the day we are communicators 
and we have to be able to communicate not only the technical aspects uh, but also the judgmental aspects and I think that people when they uh, talk to a lawyer are, are, are looking beyond their simple technical expertise uh, into um, something else and I think that that's a lot to do with the way they are as people. Uh, John, one of your other values is innovation and mm. as a progressive organisation how do you create the diversity needed to ensure you get that stream of ideas and innovation yeah. to keep you moving forward? Yeah, uh, those, are two, those two words I think are um, uh, very interesting to f- find them in the same sentence and I'm not sure that I have um, heard them in the same sentence quite in the way that you've just described. I think it's fascinating. I'll deal with diversity before I deal with innovation. Diversity is an incredibly important uh, subject here. Uh, I'm extremely proud to say that last November, um, on behalf of the firm, I collected at the British Business Awards uh, the Leadership in Diversity Award, and we were in competition, not with other law firms, but with British Business, and we were shortlisted with Capgemini and Deloitte and Marks and Spencer and Cisco. So I'm absolutely thrilled that we should be recognised um, for what we are doing in the field of diversity. And I'm not talking about just gender, as important as that subject is, uh, but I'm talking about race and ethnicity and age as well. Um, and and um, it's terribly important that uh, in managing an international uh, organisation, you have diversity of thought um, and you make sure that you have people within the organisation who um, come at problems from uh, a different cultural as well as technical viewpoint. So um, it'd be wrong to describe this as a sort of melting pot. That would be too extreme. But I think that there is a the way the firms come together. We're not a single-sighted operation. We never have been. And I think that we've always been extremely open-minded to. Uh, the people who have come into the firm and have used it as a base to develop their careers. And I think that that has led directly to um, a genuine, deep-seated attitude of innovation. Um, And I think you start with the idea that Eversheds, from its very first stirrings, was a highly innovative idea. Because in 1988, you basically had law firms um, in London, and then you had law firms in various cities around the UK. Nobody managed to achieve this idea of a... um, Well, the idea at the beginning was an alternative to London. That's how we began. And in fact, there were adverts in railway stations uh, at the time uh, which said, save the railfare, use Eversheds, because... People tended to go for their high-quality technical advice to London, and we felt that we could be uh, become an alternative. So the very first stirrings of the firm uh, were innovative, and I think that that culture and that attitude has, has fed through thereafter. Uh, in litigation terms, uh, I remember in the mid-90s, uh, litigation had a... Particularly, I mean, it, you know, it's always been a difficult topic, but it had a particularly uh, difficult time because business regarded it as very costly, very troublesome, damaged commercial relationships. It was pretty bad news. And 
I knew instinctively that what I did as a litigation lawyer added great value to business because, you know, if you're going to get out of bed in the morning and take risks in order to achieve the growth that right now everybody needs so badly, um, you're going to, from time to time, get into trouble. How well you manage those issues that will inevitably arise uh, may turn on whether the organisation is successful or not. And I was pretty um, irritated by the negativity of the litigation process and realised that it was not getting its message across. At that time, a fellow called Paul Smith, one of my partners, just come back from uh, the US having persuaded DuPont to instructors in Europe. They had something called the DuPont legal model and within it sat something called early case assessment. And early case assessment was, frankly, a cost-benefit analysis for litigation disputes. But the idea was that instead of working out in a year and a half's time uh, what the answer was, having spent a huge amount of money in the process and damaged a lot of good commercial relationships along the way, you looked at the problem um, like any business would look at a CapEx project within the first six weeks and make a decision about whether or not you were going to pursue this claim or defend it or walk away or what you were going to do. And as a result of that, I then introduced into the firm this concept of of early case assessment and it became our key um, tool for managing disputes. And to, to embed it, we set up a course at an external provider and trained all our lawyers. Um, so in other words, it was a major change management program. It was not just one of these ideas that came up and then disappeared. And it's been a fundamental part of how litigation has been practiced in this firm uh, since then. And I think that that's just an example of the kind of uh, genuinely innovative thinking that um, is part and parcel of what this firm is all about. Okay. One of the key roles of leadership is to provide inspiration Who's inspired you most on your leadership journey and what specifically was it about them that inspired you? The, um, the, the, well, there are, there are far too many people to mention, I think. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to go back to the beginning of my career because I think that it's when... Um, it's at the beginning when you're forming your thoughts and ideas that perhaps you are... The most at the most impressionable stage and where people of real quality are most likely to have the biggest impact. And I think that there are a couple of people who I'd mention um, for different reasons. Um, in Leeds at Hepworth and Chadwick, when I first started, um, there were two partners there. One was called Howard Bryan and the other was called Nimble Thompson. And they were the litigation partners um, those two guys were, uh, n- nothing was beyond them, absolutely nothing. And uh, they were incredibly cheerful, optimistic individuals. And I learned from them the importance of how you appeared because I saw how they inspired the people around them by their sheer positivity and their uh, and and as it turned out um th- their their dreams their vision what they thought could be done um 
was eventually realised. And, and I think that this sort of can-do, uh, cheerful mentality was a hugely uh, important thing for me. Um, I then left um, the firm in Leeds and I came down to London and I had six years at Freshfields. And there was a, uh, the head of litigation there was a guy called Alan Redfern. And uh, I think that um, what he taught me was the uh, importance of our role in solving problems and as opposed to simply processing problems. I mean, with litigation, there is a real danger that you can get swept up in the, the momentum of the litigation. So some of the issues are written, you serve a defence, and then you do a reply, and then you do the witness statements, and then you do the documents, and then you turn up in court, and, and you can get carried along. But if you completely change your mind to that kind of thinking, but, and you're thinking only on the uh, ultimate outcome that the client is seeking to achieve, not the win in the Court of Appeal in three years' time, but what is the commercial objective, and how are you going to solve this business problem? Because what this client wants is to get rid of this litigation, this nightmare that he's involved in. Um, and what Alan taught me was that first time round, um, it's a bit like a crossword puzzle. You may sit on the train and fail to find the answer, but then you find one little answer and you put the paper down and ten minutes later you pick it up again and, hey, another answer emerges as if from nowhere. And he emphasised the importance of using the brain that you've been given to analyse problems and develop solutions because at the end of the day uh, that's what our clients are really seeking. That's what they're looking for. The power of subconscious processing. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 Great. John, one final question uh, that I always ask is Given everything you've learnt over the years, if you had just one piece of advice to help us become better leaders, what would it be? I think I'd go back to the non-verbal communications. I think that it's uh, critically important that we uh, pay attention to the words that we use and the language that we use. But I also um, would say that it's the way that you come across in so many different ways as an individual um, that is the core to successful leadership. Super. Many thanks, John, for that insight into leadership in the context of a large partnership and also on how to bring the human element into an organisation with a highly technical focus. Thank you.